Father, we thank you what you've accomplished in Christ for us and ultimately for your glory. Lord, that is why we exist. That is why we live. We live for your glory. And so we pray that today all that we think and do, all how we operate, even how we listen to your word preached, how we sing these songs, may it be for your glory. May you be sanctified in our hearts always. Bless us now as we come to your word and we go to such a tender, very dark moment in the life of Christ. While he's there at Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, I pray that this would speak to us, speak to us of not only the nature of Jesus and what he accomplished for us, but also, Lord, how we ourselves will face dark times and difficulty and trouble and how we put away the flesh and pursue the Spirit. Help us in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it is a blessing to be with you today. I pray that we always show our gratitude to God by the way we sing and the way we study His Word. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 26. We've made our way to the section found in verses 36 to 46. And as I prayed, this is the time that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. This week, this last week in the life of our church was particularly tough, especially for Pastor Jim George and his wife Liz and their family of all weeks, Thanksgiving week, when most families were gathering to celebrate, theirs was gathering to mourn. It happened early Monday morning. I got the phone call and uh, was told that their older daughter, Catherine, had uh, perfect health, 51 years old, had suffered a aneurysm, a couple aneurysms, a consequent stroke. And uh, while she was awaiting her surgery, her brain stopped functioning. Tuesday, uh, she passed away and was ushered in the arms of her Savior. Very dark, tragic time for their family. Please keep them in your prayers. Very dark, tragic, extremely bleak times for their family. But praise be to God, their family, uh, all of them, all the adults we know, are believers. And as believers, they trust God implicitly. They trust the Lord even in difficult times. As believers, they know that God does at least two things with evil. First, He purposes evil. He doesn't merely allow evil. He purposes evil for a better purpose. Uh, you could say He allows Satan, but even when you read the book of Job, He actually purposes Satan. He has a purpose for evil for a time here on earth, and that purpose is to bring about greater good for His glory, for His praise. And so that's one thing God does with evil, even dark things like the loss of family members. He purposes evil. He's glorified in that immediate sense. The second thing that God does with evil is that ultimately He will judge all evil. He will prove His glory and His might and His righteousness and His holiness by judging with perfect justice all evil that ever existed. So in one way, God is glorified in the immediate. Things happen. God saves people. He causes people to reflect on their own eternity. Even in the midst of hardship, people reflect on their own hearts. Their hearts are softened. God uses evil for His good, and evil becomes a foundation for His judgment in the end of days. Well, there is no place that demonstrates these ideas more than the death of Jesus on the cross. 
The death of Christ was not just some freak accident that sent God scrambling to come up with a way to deal with it. No, John tells us that Jesus was, quote, slain before the foundation of the world. Peter said Jesus was predestined for the cross. These disciples, Peter and John, that I just quoted, are old and wise apostles. They got it. They understood what God does with evil. They understood that the greatest evil ever to be perpetrated on the face of this planet is the murder of the Son of God, and that of the greatest evil God would use to the greatest good. He would redeem millions. Further, they believe with full conviction that one day God would execute His perfect justice and judgment upon not only those responsible for the death, the immediate death of His Son, but all evil for all of time. So because of this knowledge, they could live in joy and in confidence in God. But these men, these disciples, were not always old and wise. In our part of the story, they were young and stupid. They didn't get it. And as such, they were not aware of the massive themes of evil and good in the world and the doctrine that surrounded them. They were not even prepared for the hard, dark moments that they were facing even even in the coming hours. What Matthew gives us here is a representation of the tension and the hardship, the conflict that was coming upon Jesus and His disciples. We're inching toward the cross, and we've now come through a threshold. We've we've gone from things that are pretty upbeat and joyous. We've had the Lord's table. There's some instruction. Maybe some of it was sort of hard to understand or hard to hear, but now we're turning toward the cross, and things are getting dark. The Garden of Gethsemane is where we find them, where the ruthless soldiers under the direction of Judas would seize Jesus, take Him to trial. And here in this passage, Matthew gives us this tension, this really confusing, hard, bleak moments for Jesus and the disciples. He did it by presenting these tensions, and I've titled this passage after one apparent tension, not my will, but yours. We also see tension between Jesus and the disciples, or you could say even the flesh and the Spirit. Well, let's read this. This story is building. It's getting darker and sadder and more bleak as we make our way to the cross, and we can feel this tension building. We can feel these things getting darker and darker. Matthew said of Jesus even, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Let's read. Follow along. I'm going to read beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. Going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May God bless the reading of his word. The Garden of Gethsemane is a 2,000-plus-year-old olive garden toward the bottom part of the Mount of Olives. In fact, that word Gethsemane means olive press. Even today, you can go there and see some of the oldest living trees on earth. In fact, those ancient trees, scientists tell us, were the children of the trees probably that were there when Jesus was there. The trees that are there now are probably 1,000 at least years old. They've tested them. They believe they're at least 1,000 years old. And the evidence shows that they were children of the trees that were there before them. If you go there today, you get a real feel, in fact, of what that garden may have looked like when Jesus was there. In fact, recently, I think just the last couple of years, they uncovered an ancient bath, a mikvah, a ritual bath for people who were being baptized into Judaism, who were becoming Jewish proselytes. They believe that bath was built just before Jesus came to the earth, so it's possible that bath was there when Jesus was there. This is a working garden for olives. This was not during the time of harvest, so it would have been empty. It would have been quiet. And it would have been a place, like I said, that bath being there indicates that it would have been a place that people would have seen as a very spiritual place, a place of retreat, a place to get away, a quiet place. Most people agree this is not the first time that Jesus retreated or withdrew to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. If you can just get in your mind this garden, it's full of these short, very thick trunk, twisted, ancient trees. The sun had set, it was dark, it was after the Lord's Supper, it was after some instruction that Jesus had given. Now Jesus went with His men there to pray. And this was not a prayer meeting like what we're going to have this coming Saturday where we pray together and we take turns. No, this was a solo task. He was the only one qualified in all human history to give his life. So they were to pray and he would pray alone. He's going to voice his inmost struggles to God. He brought his men to the garden. He leaves eight of them. Of course, there were 11 at this point. He leaves eight of them, and then he takes the the three whom he had really intentionally discipled and takes those three a little bit further and then leaves them and himself. He goes a little further, deeper into the garden to pray on his own. The prayer that he offered has never been matched in terms of intensity in all of human history. Luke reported that as he prayed, a phenomenon called hematohydrosis occurred. This occurs in people who are under severe stress. Doctors say that tiny capillaries near the surface of the skin burst and the sweat pushes blood out through the pores. This phenomenon is connected to fight or flight responses to people with among people who are under intense danger. Just to give you an idea how rare this is, there's only a dozen or a couple dozen reports in the last hundred years of doctors noting this in people. This is not very common at all. 
But I want to be clear about something. I don't believe for one second that Jesus' stress, that Jesus' fears in this moment was primarily because he was afraid of torture and death. I mean, I'm sure he was, but nothing he said and nothing that the gospel writers tell us that that was the thing that he was afraid of. What stressed Jesus? What stressed Jesus was the judgment of God Almighty. Jesus was about to face the righteous wrath of the Holy God. And it was certainly not for anything that He had done. And the judgment coming to Him was not merely judgment for the sin of another single individual. No, Mark says in Mark 10.25 that He died as a ransom for many who are the many? The angel in Matthew chapter 121 says Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Paul said Jesus loved the church and gave Himself up for His church, Ephesians 5.25, the bride of Christ. Luke said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, of these people, the church, that Jesus, quote, purchased it by His own blood. So ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about just a few sins. We're talking about millions of sins multiplied millions of times because there's millions of people. And Jesus said, let this cup pass. What is in that cup? That's all that filth. That's all that sin. That's all that depravity, and that cup represents the cup of God's wrath against it. God's wrath against lust was in that cup. His judgment against pride was in that cup. Murder was in that cup. Disobedience was in that cup. Adultery was in that cup. Anger was in that cup. All of that sin was in that cup, and the righteous judgment of God was in that cup, and Jesus was to drink it, all of it. You understand the stress of Jesus. Let me add to all of this. Every human, every one of us, no exceptions, every one of us have a weaker, lower, milder view of God's holiness and God's justice than we ought. And at the same time, we have an easier, milder, higher view of our own sin. However pure and perfect and just and righteous that you can imagine God is, He is a million times a million more holy, infinitely more holy than you could possibly imagine. And however dark you think your sin is, however depraved you think you are in your heart, you're a million times a million more depraved than that, infinitely more depraved. Jesus was the only perfect human ever. And he knew all this, all of this depravity, God's holy justice. He understood all of this perfectly as the only perfect human being. And there in the garden, he knew he was to drink all of this to himself. We use the word excruciating. It comes from the Latin idea of the cross. Really, it means the torment of the cross. What we are witnessing in Jesus' prayer is literally excruciating. It's the deepest, most intense, saddest 
prayer ever to be uttered by human lips. And it was from our Savior who was heading to the cross. Now, the cross for him was infinitely more daunting than simply physical pain or death. He's facing the judgment of God. And we should be forever grateful to the Holy Spirit that He gives us a portrait in this story through Matthew telling us what Jesus was going through in His unvarnished agony displayed here in the garden as He prayed. I hope we can feel the weight of what Jesus was going through Well, Matthew wants us to feel this, and that's what this passage is about. This passage is full of tension, it's full of darkness, and there's a couple things I wrote down, maybe you want to write these down as, as well, that demonstrate for us that tension. First of all, if you're taking notes, write down divine will and human will. When I'm talking about divine will and human will, I'm not talking about God's will versus our will, I'm talking about what existed in Jesus. Jesus had divine will and He had human will. When we talk about God's will and our will, we'll get to that here in a moment. We talk about the Spirit and the flesh. But here we're talking about Jesus' own will. Now, we always need to be very careful when we talk about the Trinity, about Jesus' deity. We've got to be very, very careful with our language, with what we say. I think it's important to, A, say what the Bible says about Jesus, B, say all of what the Bible says about Jesus, and C, add nothing to what the Bible says. You get into some pretty bizarre cults if you mess up on any one of those. That could be said of really pretty much any doctrine, but in terms of the deity of Christ, we need to say what the Bible says, all of what the Bible says, and add nothing to what the Bible says. Those of you who are Historians or theologians, maybe you want to read about the monophysite heresy or monothelitism or Nestorianism. You can come ask me later and I'll spell those for you. You'll look those up. But these all have to deal with Jesus' nature, in particular, Jesus' will. The Bible teaches us that Jesus has both a human nature and a divine nature. God the Father and God the Spirit do not have a human nature. They only have the divine nature. But Jesus has both divine nature and a human nature. Now, it's important to note that because Jesus is eternally perfect and holy, these wills that flow from His natures, His will does not conflict. Jesus' human will, human nature, does not conflict with His divine will or divine nature. It's not like He had this inner struggle. His humanity wanted one thing, but God wanted something else. No, because He was perfect, His human will always was perfectly in line with the divine will. And that's, I believe, what we see demonstrated in this prayer. Not my will, but yours. He's not saying, I want one thing, but God wants something else. I guess I'll just sort of capitulate to whatever God wants. What He's saying is His human desire, His human will always is in line with divine will. Will. I want to make that clear because sometimes we read this passage, some people read this passage, and they think Jesus is sort of like us. He has, you know, the devil on one shoulder, an angel on the one shoulder, and the, the devil's telling him to do one thing, and the angel's telling him to do another thing, and he's got to choose. Which one is he going to do? That's 
bad theology. Don't think like that. What is this? Well, I think what we have here is another example of how when Jesus became man, He humbled Himself. This humility of Christ, it flows from that, can I use the word Trinitarian or intra-Trinitarian, this covenant that God made among Himself, among the triune God, to redeem humanity, this agreement was made, and part of that agreement was that Jesus would take on human flesh. He would have a human nature. And that human nature would require ultimate humility. Why would that human nature require ultimate humility? Because He had to set aside all of His power and might and omniscience and omnipresence He's had to set aside the display of His deity in order to become human. Now, that doesn't mean He was no longer owner of His deity or owner of those great and mighty things, the Shekinah glory, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence. He, he still owned them, so to speak. They were still His. But in order to become man, He had to set them aside. He had to humble Himself. This flows straight from Philippians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8, who, speaking of Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, meaning that He was the same substance of God, He was the same essence of God, He's the same nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So these were His, these attributes... Of all his deity were his, but he had to set them aside in humility in order to be human. So when Jesus set aside the use and display of his deity, it was still his. He still owned it, like I said, but he never lost it. But it was necessary for him to humble himself and set these things aside in order to do what we just sang, veil his deity. So when he was born, he was born as a baby. His brain had to grow. He had to learn how to speak. He didn't come out of the womb singing, Mary, did you know? <laughs> he had to learn. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. Why? Because part of that agreement was, I'll humble myself and I'll go through the process of being human. This explains what we just talked about a few weeks ago when Jesus says, no one knows the hour of my return. Not the angels, not even the Son of Man. So in his pre-glorified state, Jesus had humbled himself and, and had set aside his omniscience. He didn't even know when his return was. And I think it's this humility that we see on display here when Jesus says, not my will, but yours. I don't know. I don't understand. My brain, as a human brain, in, in setting aside this, I cannot understand all this. I don't have all this knowledge. It is mine. I could access it but I have set it aside in my humility in order to go to the cross. This is what we're witnessing in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not seeing a battle of wills. In fact, there's no battle here. There's simply acquiescence. There's obedience. There's humility. There's not a struggle between human and divine will. The human will and the divine will of Jesus are in perfect accordance with one another. They're not in conflict or 
in battle or in contrast. That's why I said human will and divine will, or divine will and human will. They're not in conflict. But it does demonstrate Jesus' humility. You say, Pastor, you've gone too deep for me. This is past my education or my understanding. Well, then just be astounded at Jesus' humility. Be amazed that the King of Heaven was in this ancient garden getting ready to be arrested, punished, and killed. That He humbled Himself to that. Be amazed at that. Be astounded by that truth. Jesus took this crucifixion for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of God. And I think what Matthew wants us to see and others want us to see as we come to this time in Gethsemane is this intense journey that Jesus is going through, this, the, the amount of humility, the amount of willingness that Jesus had to produce here is truly supernatural. Jesus already began suffering there in that garden, he began to face all that He would face, thinking about what was coming, mainly the judgment of God. We're going to see very soon, He's not afraid of Judas. He's not afraid of the soldiers. He's not afraid of Pilate. He's not afraid of Herod. He's not afraid of the Sanhedrin. He's not afraid of the people who would punish Him and hurt Him and insult Him. But He fears God. And this is what Jesus was facing, the judgment and wrath of the Almighty God. In His humility, He had submitted Himself to this. He had consecrated Himself for this task. And as dark and as hard and difficult as it was, so stressful that He sweat drops of blood, as dark as this was, He was willing. To His human will, His divine will, or things He carried in humility, they weren't in contrast. The second point I want to make today is indeed about contrast because we see this among the disciples. The spirit, number two, the spirit versus the flesh. The spirit versus the flesh. Now, you can hardly read this passage without seeing the difference between Jesus and His disciples. I read this passage, of course, many times this last week and. In my reading and in my research, I came across uh, many different depictions of this scene, some of them paintings, some of them poems, some of them songs retelling this story. And in every depiction, you see Jesus over on one side suffering, understanding the gravity of the situation, understanding the, the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the depravity of humanities. He's understanding this and understanding what's, what's going to happen and praying, sweating drops of blood, weeping, stressed, undergoing immense pressure. And then over on the other side are the disciples schnoozing, taking a nap. Well, picking up the story here, all the disciples, 11 of them, head to Gethsemane. Jesus had eight stand by while He took the inmost, as I mentioned, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden. Verse 38, He said to those three, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And I don't think there's any question what he meant by the word watch. 
This is a prayer time. This is a time of intense, sorrowful prayer. When Jesus said, watch with me, I think, yes, it meant someone was coming, look out for this, but I think really it meant to point your attention to God. Have a desire to speak to God, request strength, request endurance, seek help. I mean, Jesus had just told them that they would abandon Him in the coming hours. This would be a perfect time for them to pray that God would sustain them, that they wouldn't fail, but they don't. When Jesus reprimanded them later, He tells me that when He said watch, it was clear that He meant pray. They were supposed to be praying and watching, looking to God, sensing the depth of the moment, looking for strength. But what do they do? Well, what we have here is another evidence that some of these disciples were teenagers. What did they do? They fell asleep. They took a nap. I'm so tired. Verse 40, came to the disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, the word spirit there, it could be referring, it's the same word, it could be referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think you could come up with basically the same meaning here of the text in terms of application and what was Jesus would say later. But I think that's probably a little less likely because until Pentecost, the idea of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit really wasn't prominent. So the other more likely interpretation is simply talking about who they really are down deep inside. What they are in their hearts, what they are in their souls, their spirits, who they are as genuine Christ followers, and that's really who they are. They are Christ followers. God had made them new. God had changed their heart. God had purified them. God had done a work in their hearts. And, and you see this even in Peter's words, Peter's confession in Matthew 16. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. He's changed your heart. You're a, a new person. You're following me. And so I think in their heart of hearts, they, they want to follow Christ to the death. They want to be faithful to God. They want to stick with Him. They want to stay awake and pray. They want to have disciplines. They want to be faithful. That's what they truly want down deep inside. That's, that's really true to who they are because God had changed them. God had given them a new heart. But they had this thing called the flesh. They had this thing, the flesh. The Spirit is willing, meaning you are my men, you are my disciples, you are my followers. Your faith, though it may waver, is true. It will be proven in the end. You may falter and fail for a little bit, but you'll return. It will be proven in the end. Your spirit, your true self, the deepest part of you has been transformed, but your flesh is weak. I think Jesus means a couple of things by the word flesh. One, I think He is talking about just the physical body. The flesh is weak. It's prone to weariness. Tiredness, it's probably very late at night at this point. He wants to sleep. He can be ill. It fails you. 
as I've gotten closer and closer to age 50, I've noticed every once in a while, for no apparent reason, my knee just will give out. I'll be walking and doing my own thing, and then suddenly, whoa, it's a weak, it's weak flesh. Weak, weakness is tied to our flesh. So I think he is talking about the body. But Jesus must also be talking about the residual self. If God had made them a new man, they had changed their nature, He had given them a new heart, there still was a battle with sin because there was the residual old self. When we are saved, our soul, our heart, our spirit is redeemed, we are regenerated, we're made new, we're transformed, and that defines the core of who we are. We are Christ followers, we love the Lord, that's who we are as believers. But until our bodies and minds are redeemed, there is that residual self. There is that old man that Paul talks about in Ephesians that we have to battle. Which means we give in to temptations, right? We, though our spirit wants to do the right thing, there is some lure out there. There's something that looks enticing. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. There's something out there and... And, and though down deep inside we don't want to do that, there's the old residual man that sort of hangs around that old body and that wants to give in to those things. There's also repercussions of old sins. I was speaking to a young sailor recently, just walking through the gospel, and he's getting very close to coming to Christ, and he was telling him about salvation and come becoming a Christian, and he was admitting some uh, level of addictions that he had and, uh, and said, basically, you know, so if I, if I become a believer, if I follow after Christ, that means I'll, be, I'll have no problem with anything. It will just go away. And I gave him the example that I give to a lot of these young people or anybody really coming to know Christ, and, and that is this. If you were jumping off the Empire State Building and halfway down, you realize that Christ had come to this earth, died for your sins, and you repented of your sin, and you followed after Christ, what would happen to your body? You'd still go splat on the ground. There are repercussions to decisions that you've made even before you were a Christian. There are repercussions. There's addictions. There's problems. There's decisions you've made. There's battle wounds, right? You've done things many years ago, maybe some of you, and you're still suffering for them now. This is part of what the flesh is, right? The flesh has those repercussions. Tied to that is baggage. Maybe it's not something that you did. Maybe it's something that people did to you. Hurts, pains, sorrows, abuse, things that have happened to you that scar you and hurt you, and, and you carry that in your flesh, maybe physically, but maybe mentally, maybe emotionally. This is part of the flesh, and it affects you, it changes you, it, it wars against doing the right thing, what the Spirit says. Now, these things are still present even if your spirit has been made new. Some people say this, in salvation you are freed from the penalty of sin, you're even free from the power of sin, meaning you don't have to sin anymore. You can actually produce spirit-led righteousness. But until your body is redeemed and that old one put in the grave and you're given a new one, you are not yet free from the presence of sin. This subject matter, 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This subject matter is all over the New Testament. This, this becomes a, something very important for a Christian to think about and to, to work through. I have something down deep inside, and, and, and it's one of those things you, you know. And in fact, it helps you understand you're a believer because you don't like your sin. You hate your sin. You want to turn away from your sin. That's the spirit. It's willing. You know what is good. Yet your mind and your body, your flesh, wars against the Spirit. Really beginning here, God throughout the New Testament encourages us to fight the good fight, to battle that flesh, to remind ourselves whose we are and who we are as believers. I think this is what Paul was after in Romans 6, really first part of that whole chapter, but he comes to a, a sort of an apex in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as to sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though have been those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Follow what is right and what is true. Follow what you know to be right, righteousness. Paul said something similar in Galatians 5, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the spirit, desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, you want to do what's right. As a believer, you want to do what's right. These men, I believe, they probably, down deep inside, wanted to continue to pray, but they were so tired. They were so weak. They gave in. Well, this gets us to some application. I don't always do this. Usually I wrap the application all in with my points, but I figured I'd write down some things that we need to take away from today's passage. One is this. Try to comprehend the person of Christ. I know that the deity of Christ and how all these things work, I know that's sort of hard to wrap our minds around and you feel like you're you're walking on eggshells. You don't want to say or think the wrong things. But I think we ought to make an effort because there's truth about who Christ, the person of Christ is, that in that one person there are two natures. I think it's important that we think about these things. The, the church early on, right after Jesus left, the church began to say, okay, what does the Scripture teach about these things? What does the Bible have to say about Jesus' divine nature and His human nature, His divine will and His human will. I think it's important for us to, to think about it, come to some level of understanding. You're not going to be able to wrap your mind all the way around it, but at least make an effort to understand the person of Christ. Another application, I would say, is to try to endure the way Jesus did. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when He says, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think what He's saying is, endure the way I am, depending on God, Praying, trusting the Lord, focusing on obedience, doing what's right, submitting to the will of God. Try to endure the way Jesus did. There's a lot of us in this room, not just Pastor Jim and Liz, but a lot of you are facing some hard stuff. Try to endure the way Jesus did. Wrap your heart and your mind around Jesus. Pray study, think, 
how can I submit my will to God's and reject my flesh? The third thing is really the main point, I believe, of this passage. I believe Matthew gives us this passage, and I, I told you this at the beginning. I believe Matthew gave us this passage so that we would feel the weight of the crucifixion. I think ultimately what we're supposed to do as we read this passage, yes, there's some very good application about the spirit and the flesh and how we endure, but I think ultimately what we're supposed to do as we see this is see how dark and terrible the judgment of God that was coming toward Christ for the sins of many. These were dark moments. It was confusing. It was hard. It was stressful upon Jesus. The disciples were already starting to slip and fail and mess up. They would do it even more as time went forward. We're going to see this next time. Feel the weight of what was happening. You know, we're in the time of the Advent. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And one reason that I love to celebrate Christmas is because I don't look at just the birth of Jesus. I like to look at Jesus' whole life, that this is the incarnation. This is not simply a birth of a baby, a cute story. This is the incarnation of God here on earth. This is God with us. And this includes His birth, His entire perfect life, His death, and His resurrection. So when I think about Christmas, when I think about the Advent season, I'm thinking about these things, even the weight of the crucifixion that was coming upon our Savior's shoulders. This little baby was born to die. This little baby was born to bear the sins of many, and the punishment that God would pour out on him was for us. Well, let's pray that we can do this in this time. Father, we do thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Matthew here and the story of Christ there in that garden. And what a dark, scary, confusing, difficult moment for Jesus, for the disciples. Lord, there are so many great examples, and there's such, there's so many great. Uh, pieces of instruction here about suffering hardship and persecution and difficulty and the effects of our bodies and sin. But ultimately, Lord, we see the weight of the world on the shoulders of Jesus as He begins to make His way to the cross. May we always worship Him because He drank that cup, we enjoy the cup of redemption. We enjoy the cup at the Lord's table. We enjoy fellowship. We enjoy friendship. We enjoy eternal life because of what Christ did. May we never lose sight of this, even in this Advent season. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand. And let me read to you. A benediction. May the one who makes the cactus burst into bloom, who makes the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy, grant you the power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep 
is the love of Christ for us. Amen. Thank you.